This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Hilary Harper here, coming to you from Wurundjeri country. For RN Summer, we're bringing you our best stories. Life Matters turned 30 earlier in the year and we celebrated by revisiting some great moments like this one. She has a lot in me of an appreciation for um, things other than humans that has to do with the interrelationship with nature. She has made me aware of trees and birds and worms and insects and rocks and uh, ground and to say nothing of nature. Dogs, nature and being a movie star with Shirley MacLaine. Kemi Nekvapil has reflected deeply on the idea of power. And she argues that we have a lot more control over our own lives than we may have been led to believe. Kemi Nekvapil, thank you so much for joining me on Life Matters. Absolute delight to be here, Hilary. Very, very pleased to have you. Kemi is a public speaker, a thought leader, and most recently the author of a book called Power, A Woman's Guide to Living and Leading Without Apology. Kemi, what does power mean to you? Well, power has changed for me over the years. And one of the reasons for writing the book was to redefine power. So I suppose like many of us, power looked a particular way and felt a particular way and a form of power that many of us do not want to associate with this idea that power is being done to us and therefore we are powerless. And how that's now changed for me is that power that we have innately within all of us is the power that we want to be building and nurturing for and with each other. You write really interestingly about that idea that you grew up with, I think, too, that that power was a finite thing and that some people had it and some people didn't and, you know, it, it was transferred. But you argue that there's actually enough to go around. Can you give me an example of how two people or two groups might both grow in power? Well, the example is that power a finite is that power is scarcity. So therefore, if I have power, you can't have power and I must hold on to it as tightly as I can by any means necessary. And yet there is this abundant source of power that we all have innately that it can get taken away from us. Sometimes we give it away as women. We're very strategic. We also know when it is more powerful to give away our power. And then sometimes as well, we have to learn to rebuild that power back up. So different groups of people at different times move in and out of power. And I think there's a power in knowing when, why and how we do that. So when you say we we as women give away our power, can you give me an example? Well, I know for me, you know, growing up in England as a young black girl, mainly navigating white spaces, one of the ways that I gave away my power is that I didn't use my voice that I didn't speak up, that I knew that my role was to be a good girl and to be a good black girl and to not draw any attention to me, to not ask for more than what I had and that I basically had to work with whatever was given to me and whatever I was told I was allowed. So that was my example of living in apology and my example of feeling powerless as I navigated those spaces. But you write too about those appalling moments when it was made clear to you how much power adults and even other children had of you. There was the, the moment when you were taken back to your foster parents being accused of shoplifting and the police officer said something appalling to you. Tell us what that was. 
Well, yes, and I have to say, I wasn't just accused. I did shoplift. I shoplifted a strawberry-flavoured smelling rubber and a pencil, and the police took me back with, um, you know, with a fear in my heart. And obviously for me, the police had power. And the policeman said to me, if you ever do anything like this, I will separate you and your sister. I did not know as a young child that that policeman did not actually have the means to do that. But of course, I believed him. He was white. He was male. I was a young black girl and I just believed what he told me. And so it sounds like, I mean, I understand what you mean when you say that there are moments where we kind of give away our power or diminish our power and our voices, Mm -hmm. but there are also big structures operating against us at various points, aren't there? 100%. And when I'm working with clients, regardless of their stage in life, their level of their career or the social economic resources that they may have, there are structures in place that for us as women and then for women of colour or women that are neurodiverse or women that are living with disability, there are structures in place that make us feel powerless and make us feel small. And I know that part of my work when working with clients or speaking to large groups is to remind us all that it's not just an individual feeling of powerless that we have. It is a structure that has been created and therefore we need to take the time to explore, examine and unpick those structures. And so your book talks about the ways that individuals can do this uh, by looking at the beliefs that we personally have kind of integrated into our view of ourselves. How does that relate to those bigger structures and the kind of collective effort that might be needed to dismantle them? Well, I know that for me, and I'm really curious about looking at the internal biases that we have. So for me, my experience of that was that I was never told that I had any intelligence whatsoever. Even the fact that I turned up to school, my teachers just thought was incredible. So nothing was expected from me. And so I believe that I was not intelligent. So therefore, when I had opportunities and choices in my life, because I didn't consider myself to be intelligent, I then didn't take those opportunities All those opportunities weren't presented to me. So now when I look at how people that don't fit into the majority, the way that we step into our power is that we demand that we be in those spaces, that we grab those opportunities. And for those people that have privileges different to the ones that we have, because I know I have level of privilege, even as a woman of colour, the spaces that I'm in, I have privileges that other people don't have. And how do we use our privileges in a powerful way? For me, it's standing on stage and knowing that other people of colour can see me. That's a really interesting thing. You say, you know, we should weaponise our privilege. And for Mm. people who aren't people of colour, that's quite tricky territory uh, in recent years because there's a big discussion about whether we should use the privilege that we have or dismantle the privilege that we have. What are your thoughts on that? I actually think we are moving into an incredibly exciting chapter because If we use our privilege, whatever that privilege is, that creates a sense of equality for all of us. So I am married to a middle class white male. And so for him to use his privilege in the spaces that he is, is more powerful for me as a black woman than him being quiet. And so I think this is an opportunity now for all of us to take ownership of our privileges, to not feel guilty. I feel that guilt around privilege is boring. We can use it in a really, really powerful way that serves more of us. We're speaking with Kemi Nekvapil. She's an international public speaker. She coaches people on how to succeed and she's thought a lot about power, the big picture and the little picture. Her latest book is called Power, A Woman's Guide to Living and Leading Without Apology. Kemi, is this book relevant for men as well? 
That's a great question, Hilary. I've had men that have read the book and have gained a lot from it, either because they have seen how women have to navigate the world in a way that they haven't seen before, or there are questions, there are coaching questions all the way through it. And coaching questions, it doesn't matter whether you're male, female, non-binary, questions are questions. So it allows people to dig deeper into when they have been in and out of power. I know from some of the men that I do work with that also the patriarchal structures don't serve men either. They have felt powerless within those structures. So although I've written the book for women, I also know that men have gained a lot from reading the words. I also did think about... As you say, you know, you've worked with people from different backgrounds and with varying levels of of social and cultural and financial power and privilege. What options are available to women who might have less of that uh, structural power when they hear that idea that they should be able to express their needs and take up space and, and have their needs met? Because they might have that very real understanding that there'll be pushback and there'll be repercussions for them if they try to do that. Oh, 100%. And to be honest, I also think that the women at the top echelons of society know that if we use our voices and we have an opinion that there'll be pushback and we know that that can be very destructive and it's predictable, unfortunately. So then women that find themselves in situations, and I cannot speak to women that find themselves in situations of domestic violence or abuse, but what I know that women that aren't in that situation is that we all have moments of power that we can claim for ourselves. So that can be asking for help. You know, I think we have all navigated life at some point when we have felt powerless and power can come from asking for help or sharing with another person, this is what is going on for me and I need support right now. It doesn't have to be standing up on a stage and speaking. It can be telling someone that you love that is dear to you, I'm struggling right now and I need support. That can be power. And you talk in the book and in other contexts too, Kemi Nekvapil, about growing up in foster families as a a black girl in a predominantly white society in the UK. How did you come to realise that you had more power than you'd felt you had? Was there a turning point you can remember? I wouldn't say there was one particular moment, but there was a situation when I landed with my last set of foster parents and I'd actually been homeless for quite a few months before that and I arrived with two plastic bags of my belongings. So the next morning, my foster mother took me shopping and she asked me what colour underwear I wanted because I didn't have the basics. And I remember in that moment, I didn't really hear what she said the first couple of times she asked me the question, but then I realised that she was asking me to choose. And in that moment, of choice, I realise I do have power. I do have a sense of having some sort of agency in my life. And right now, it's only choosing the colour of my underwear, but that is what power looks like for me right now. And so from that moment, there have always been moments within my work as a business owner, as a mother, as a wife, as a colleague. There are moments when we can step into our power again and again and again. And I love how you write about how people can carry those realisations that that might be about such a seemingly small thing into the workplace and the wider world and their other contexts that they come to occupy later in life. Can you give us some uh, examples of how people might use the conception of power that you talk about in your book in their lives? How How does one start tapping into one's power? Well, one thing obviously that I did at the beginning of the book because of this kind of idea of power that most of us have grown up with was to redefine power. So the Oxford Dictionary definition of power is the ability or capacity to do something in a particular way. So then what I wanted to do was break down the word of power into an acronym that is five power principles, presence, ownership, wisdom, equality and responsibility. So let's take ownership, for example. 
most of us have very complex stories around who we are, the experiences that we've had, how we've been raised, and yet there can be some shame or embarrassment or we don't take full ownership of our stories. And yet owning our stories without apology, without guilt, can be a form of power. And then let's have a look at responsibility, that we find ourselves in situations in life sometimes where we're complaining about something that isn't working for us, whether it's work, whether it's personal, whether it's domestic, whether it's out in our career. And yet, instead of complaining, we can decide that it's a powerful move to take full responsibility for that situation and maybe have the difficult conversation or remove ourselves from that particular environment or start to craft a life that is working and does fulfil who we are and what we need. I found it so confronting, your, your phrasing around living as an apology, or not confronting, but, but very powerful in itself because it makes you think about those times when you've realised that the world is effectively saying to you, you're a bit wrong, you're not the right thing, yeah. you know, and you've, you've just got to kind of get through life somehow. And there's this question that you ask clients, what are you tolerating? What, what are you hoping to help them uncover with that question? It's normally a question that we don't get asked often. It's one of the things that I love about coaching is that I get to create the space to ask questions that many of us don't give ourselves the time to ask. So when I ask a client, and it's because I had been asked this by a coach many years ago and it was transformative for me, that question, what are you tolerating in your life, really gives the person that's answering the question the space and the time to explore what is working in my life and what is not working in my life. In terms of power, it's like, where are you tolerating feeling powerless? So I have worked with many female clients that work in executive spaces. So they find themselves in meetings or in boardrooms or they run the team. And yet there will be an energy in that room or there is a culture within that organization that has them feel that they cannot speak. And so they tolerate that. So then their sense of power comes from, I'm going to own that this is how I feel in this situation and I'm going to take responsibility for having the conversation I need to have. Maybe if I can't transform this organisation, I can at least transform the room that I'm in. Well, you also talk about how judgment and failure are part of becoming a leader, whether that's an executive or a teacher or a community leader or a parent. How do you deal with that personally, Kemi, the fact that we're always becoming those leaders? We might make mistakes and look foolish on the way. Yes, I am not one of the people that subscribe to this idea that failure doesn't exist. I think failure does exist and it can be heartbreaking and devastating and we need to be able to be with the grief of that failure. And maybe or maybe not there is a lesson. That there, I feel that sometimes the narrative is, if, no, there's no failure, it's only a good thing, it, it's taught me something. But I think there's power in saying I failed. I failed. I had an aspiration. I did the thing. It didn't work. And I failed. Once again, that's taking ownership, taking responsibility and being present to what is and isn't working. So for me, if we want to live fully in life and we're not going to apologize for being here or apologize for our voices, then we have to know that failure is a part of that journey. And then forgiveness for oneself flows from that. But you also say it's really important to direct that forgiveness towards others. Can you expand on that a bit for our listeners? Well, I think many of us know that forgiveness can be very, very tough. And we don't necessarily forgive for the other person, though. We forgive for ourselves, that there can be a lightness and a sense of grounding that comes from 
I do not deny that the thing happened, whatever it is, but what I am doing in forgiving is that I am releasing myself from carrying that with me for the rest of my life because that can give us a sense of powerlessness if we continue to take through the whole of our lives things that have happened in the past. Not easy in any way. And sometimes we need professional support to take us on the path to forgiveness. But many people that do forgive have found that it can be transformative for them. I love too that you say that delight diaries and having Mm. fun are part of this project as well. Why is that? Oh, delight. I'm obsessed with delight and beauty and joy and fun because I believe that we are here for a very, very short time. And somewhere, somehow, many of us took on the belief that once we left school, once we left primary school, that there was no more fun to be had. Mm. Now we're an adult, things must be serious and we must get on with things. And yet, the people that can we fun and joy into delight are the people that most of us want to spend time with. Obviously, we have moments in life where we might experience depression or that, you know, devastating things are happening and maybe fun and delight isn't the case. But I have to say, during a global pandemic, many of us went towards comedy and we went towards beauty and we went towards things that brought us moments of delight to help us navigate a very challenging situation. So I believe that joy and delight are very, very deep grounding forms of power. Yep. If we can't dance, it's not our revolution, that idea. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly that idea. So, Kimmy Neckverpil, what would you say to someone who might be saying, okay, I'm, I'm ready to take on this, this uh, project of going through this internal reckoning, looking at the beliefs that I might have carried through my life that have not been helping me and questioning what I was taught about power. What's your advice to them for starting and continuing that? I love that you use the word reckoning, Hillary, because it can be confronting. Because when we start to unpick some of the beliefs that we've had about ourselves and what we're allowed in life and what we're allowed to do and who we're allowed to be, it can be incredibly confronting. So what I would say to anyone that wants to explore and go into this journey is be kind to yourself. As we spoke about earlier, there are structures in place that have made us feel small and feel powerless. So as you're unpicking that, the most important form of power right now is to be present and to be kind to yourself as you navigate this journey. Well, and when we think about those big structures, I was so struck by Rumi's story, a 14-year-old girl whose story you came across when you worked with the Hunger Project. Tell us what happened to Rumi and, and how her classmates stepped in. I have the privilege of facilitating for the Hunger Project. So the Hunger Project believes that the hungry can get themselves out of hunger. They don't need to be saved. They may not have the resources that many of us have, but they have the intelligence and the internal resources. So Rumi was a 14-year-old girl that lived in a very rural village in Bangladesh. And she was one of the poorest students at school. And it became very apparent to her father that he was no longer going to be able to, to pay Rumi's fees. So Rumi wasn't at school for a few days. And one of her friends noticed and went, and visited Rumi after school and asked her what was going on. And Rumi said, my dad is going to marry me. And Rumi shares that she knew that her life was over and that she was devastated. She knew that if she was married, she would be having children within a year and her education was finished. Rumi's friends gathered and they went and spoke to Rumi's father and said, you cannot do this. Her life has just begun. Do not take away her power to which her father listened to these 14-year-old girls, and I think we all should listen to the younger generations. And Rumi's dad decided that he wouldn't marry her off. 
she now has the aspirations to become a doctor. But the 14-year-old girls hadn't finished. They had now felt this sense of power. They went to the school and said, we think you need to create a fund for the poorer families within our village so that they don't have to marry off their daughters. The headmistress took it on. They created a fund. And what I say in the book is never underestimate the power of 14-year-old girls. Yep, for the big picture and the little picture. Kemi mm. Nekvapil, thank you so much for sharing some of those stories today and giving us lots to think about when it comes to the power structures in our own life. We really appreciate your time. It's been an absolute delight, Hilary. Thank you. Kemi Nekvapil is a thought leader, author of several books. Her latest is called Power, A Woman's Guide to Living and Leading Without Apology. Time for another dip into the 30-year archive of Life Matters. And it's former presenter Julie McCrossan speaking here with one of America's top stars in her day. And what joins these two together? A love of canines. This year, Life Matters turns 30. And to celebrate, we've taken one interview from every year we've been with you. So let's spin that wheel and see which year we play today. It's 2004. Right now, it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome Shirley MacLaine to Life Matters. Now, Shirley MacLaine, of course, has appeared in in more than 50 films, many Broadway shows. She's won 10 Golden Globes, three Emmys, an Oscar, and she's been nominated for an Academy Award on six occasions. Her books, Get Ready for This, have sold over 20 million copies worldwide. And her latest book is called Out on a Leash. It's about her life and her life with her dog, Terry. So to discuss life, her dog and the pleasures of New Mexico, it's my great pleasure to welcome Shirley McLean. Welcome to Life Matters. <laughs> Thank you very much, Julie. <laughs> you must have That's heard... an intimidating resume, huh? <laughs> and, and, and what's extraordinary, Shirley, is of course it's a, gr- it's a great summary of, an, uh, of a much bigger life. Uh, mm-hmm. Look, I, I want to introduce the heart of, of your book, for me, by you telling us about what you were going through when you were offered a job, a film job, in Ireland. What was the problem with that for you? Well, I have my little dog, Terry, who goes with me everywhere. She doesn't like being away from me. I don't like being away from her. The problem was the quarantines in the UK and uh, actually how she would uh, travel aboard a plane or whatever. And I couldn't get that solved. Fortunately, the money fell through for the film. <laughs> but now I've finished the book. I was fine off the problem. And now the, we're going to do the film. So I have to decide. The quarantine has already been uh, eased because we have what we call home quarantine now. And I think many people must have complained uh, who travelled to the UK. You guys down there have a very strict quarantine. Uh, we're, we're even more strict. But I, I was interested in your book when this uh, problem was being discussed that you you talked about Elizabeth Taylor's solution to the same problem. Can you tell me how Elizabeth Taylor coped with Britain's quarantine laws in the past? Yeah, she rented a yacht and lived on the yacht so that uh, Sugar, her little dog, never set foot uh, on the ground in the British Isles, but she and Richard lived on the yacht. Well, I'm not going to do that. I can't afford that. But it tells so, us... So anyway, I think it's all arranged now. She's done her home quarantine. Now I just have to find a plane that will take her in the cabin rather than go in the back because I will not put her 
in that those cages on the back of the plane. And in the United States, is it hard to find planes where, where you and Terry can fly oh, together? Oh, no, that's, that's simple. On, in the UK, in the United States, that's fine. No problem. Uh, except for Southwest, which is the airline that travels from New Mexico to L.A., and they don't take dogs. So I have to go what I call America Worst in order to do it really America West, but anyway, we travel that way. So what should be a two-hour trip ends up taking me eight hours because I have to stop in different cities. But you see how Terry's completely changed my life because I won't travel without her. If I told you, say, 10, 20 years ago, that you at this stage in your life would be building your travelling and working schedule around a little terrier called Terry, <laughs> you know, who, with respect, Shirley MacLaine, I've, I've poured over your book as you would, Terry's a very ordinary-looking terrier, isn't she? I don't think so. <laughs> I think she's quite beautiful. She has very long legs. She has a, a kind of sleek and, and portending little bit chubby body, but that's because of the muscles. No, I think she's absolutely beautiful. Okay, but in a terrier lineup, she'd be just one of the terriers. You know, what has what she unlocked in you? <laughs> this kind of attitude. <laughs> She has unlocked in me a, an appreciation for um, things other than humans mm -hmm. that has to do with the interrelationship with nature. Mm -hmm. She has made me aware of trees and birds and worms and insects and rocks and uh, ground and to say nothing of nature. Uh, my guest here on Life Matters today is Shirley MacLaine and I'm speaking to her from her home in New Mexico about her new book, out on a leash. Open our eyes to the country in New Mexico where you are now. When you go out with Terry and your other dogs, what are you seeing there? Can you describe it for us? You know, it's very interesting, Julie. They call New Mexico the land of enchantment. That's what's on the license plates. And it, I think it has something to do with what happens to your consciousness when you're here. You feel enchanted. And that's probably because there are a lot of crystals that came from um, a caldera that apparently erupted 35,000 years ago or something. And on my ranch, or many places, because New Mexico is, um, has very high altitude. It goes up 10,000, 12,000 feet, and certainly not sea level. But what happens is you walk among, you walk among the natural things with an application amplification of consciousness because of the crystals. That's, that's my opinion of why it has such an extraordinary uh, effect on people. It also uh, can spit you out if you're not ready to look at yourself, if you're not ready to be kind of amplified in all that you are, so to speak. It's mm. scary and you leave. Uh, you describe, I think very vividly in this book, the sense of living utterly in the now or seeking to live utterly in the now, a bit the way we observe with our pets, with young dogs, that they just frolic and enjoy it without thought. And you seem to yearn for that. I do, because you won't find an animal uh, remembering what bad happened, unless it was repetitiously horrible. They usually forget about what that was, and they have no agony about the future. And we seem to be all caught up in these priorities 
that have nothing to do with now, but more to do about who we blame for the past and what we're afraid of down the road. I guess what I'm interested, Shirley McLean, in exploring with you is the contrast between this New Mexico landscape and lifestyle and your focus on the freedom of your relationships, particularly with Terry and the, and the other dogs, how this contrasts mm-hmm. with other parts of your life. Uh, uh, for example... You, you talk a lot about the unconditional love that you feel for this animal and that you feel this animal feels for you. And I, I noted when you, when you discuss your mother uh, in the book that you describe her as extremely withholding with her emotions, that she saw this mm-hmm. as diplomatic. Tell us about a little bit about your mum and that aspect of her. Well, mother was Canadian, Julie, so there you go right there. You understand it a little bit more. I mean, they the Canadians live in a in a culture of cold for a long part of the year. And so therefore, I think they're more isolated emotionally. But the the sensibility of withholding your feelings it has to drop when you're with an animal. And also, I think that we're very judgmental of our relationships with humans. And we have agendas with other humans, and we have expectations with other humans. With an animal that you deeply love, all of that is erased, and you're living, as you say, in the now, but also you're, you're living with no judgment. And tell me about how, as you've got older now in your 60s, how your attitudes and approach to relationships and sexual relationships have changed, because that's another theme in the book, in a sense, the, the letting go of aspects of that part of your life from the past. Well, I sort of cottoned on to a long time ago that sex is basically a non-issue. Sex is really more about intimacy, if it's good, um, power, if it's not, uh, many times money, if it comes up. It's, it's with this whole subject of sexuality. I think the human race is focused too much on it and... and um, but is that partly about the phase of uh, of life that you're in? You, you know, you describe being in bed with this little dog and it's clearly physical comfort, it's psychological reassurance, you know, it's it's a very, it's a real relationship, but it, it is something it, you couldn't it, have had in your 20s. No, in my 20s my raging hormones were were controlling me and different other aspects of life at 20. It could be ageing, but I don't... I don't know. I know, because we're in a different area of emotional uh, compatibility now in the world, where younger people are coming to what took me so long to realize they're coming to earlier. So maybe they're getting their priorities uh, more straight and clear sooner. But I, I have this intimacy with Terry that doesn't have any expectation or any judgment mm-hmm. to it. And so. that must be a relief after... Well, it's over fifty years in the entertainment industry, where the one's physical appearance and capacity to, you know, to hoof it and sell it is is ever present, isn't it? It's, it's all about expectations. Present. That's right, and it's made me look at that differently. But I also now, where my appearance is concerned, I think about it more in terms of health mm. than I do um, in terms of cosmetic uh, vanity. And I'm, I maybe that has something to do with 
the way Terry's influence has uh, has got me. I'm, I don't know. Mm. My guest on Life Matters is Shirley MacLaine and her latest book, Out on a Leash, Exploring the Nature of Reality and Love, is, is part of our topic and also a little about her life now living in New Mexico. Uh, you, you talk about in a transition to a life that is much less scheduled than your past life, but also the life of many of your friends. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little about that, because that's another pretty big transition for someone who's made over 50 films. You know, you've had a very scheduled life. Absolutely. I get up now and don't schedule anything for the day. I have no idea, and I purposely don't make any plans, unless it's absolutely necessary for someone else. I don't know what I will be doing. <clears throat> I have no times uh, and no priorities uh, in terms of those kind of boxes. It's absolutely extraordinary. And was I that very a... hard at the beginning? Yeah, it was. How, how long the has it taken thing... you to, 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 to get comfortable with the idea of waking up and not having a plan? I would say a year and a half, maybe two. And the other thing I've done is I'm learning to live in a state of complete surrender. So that whatever happens, happens. What doesn't, doesn't. Something I wanted doesn't happen. So I surrender to that inevitability. I'm not as goal-oriented. I'm not as... um I'm, I'm not as much of an overachiever as I was. I'm not so will-oriented so that my will and my way of organising things will be the way it goes. I That isn't happening to me now. And that is a huge change. I mean, you discuss oh, your work is. ethic. and uh, you, you, The image for me of you as a dancer is that image of uh, taking off the dancing shoes at the end of a hard session, there's blood in the shoes. You know, it doesn't get harder than being a dancer, does it? No, it doesn't. And it doesn't get more disciplined than that. And it doesn't get more organised than that. And it doesn't get more psychologically exposed and spiritually exposed and mentally exposed. Mm. Now I'm relaxing all of those things. Of course, I don't dance anymore, but that has been my training. So it's a huge shift. As a matter of fact, I've noticed that in, in kind of employing this life of, let's say, consciousness surrender, I have drawn to me five great scripts. Whereas when I was trying to develop them and so forth, Oh, all sorts of things would happen. This wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be right, and so forth. Now they're all coming to fruition, and I have to say that I'm leading it up to the universe uh, to allow it to happen. But uh, Shirley McLean, don't you think that's part of the entertainment showbiz industry? That it's a bit like a sexual relationship. If you look desperate and you want it, they relax. They come running. Well. I don't know that it has to do with them. It has to do with me because I'm creating my own reality. They may not even be uh, real. (laughs) In my world, in my universe, they exist. But I can't tell you if these people that are the industry is anything but my dream. Could I just ask you one question? I know our time is nearly up, but going back to what this uh, terrier, Terry, has Uh, unlocked within you. At one point in the book you say this, I look at Terry and wonder if my love for her is some sort of overcompensation for not having been there for my own daughter. Is Terry my new daughter? It almost seems ridiculous to say it, but a dog is so much easier to raise. With children we constantly worry about the future. Well, what were you trying to dig into there? Probably another book (laughs) about motherhood. Um, But I bet it has occurred to me that with Terry, it's so free-flowing 
it's so totally and completely enjoyable that with raising a child, you're constantly worried, are you doing the right thing? Mm. Is your own background interfering with what you might be imposing on the child? What are your educational priorities? Is that what the child really wants? Mm. Should you listen more to the child than you do to your own intelligence? Should and when you, you when you reflect on your own uh, mothering of your daughter, is there anything you you do differently with, with hindsight? You know, I can't really. I think I didn't spend enough time with her. Um, but on the other hand, how can you look back and say uh, you regret it because somehow it was in alignment? with the destiny you were leaving, uh, leading at the time. So I, I, I'm not one to look back and regret and say I would do different because I think that's like saying you'd have to have a different life. Mm. One last question I have to ask you, Shirley McLean, because of the many movies you've been in that have moved me, one that was extremely influential in my life, if you can recall it, it's a way back, was The Loudest Whisper, also uh, uh, known as The Children's Hour, based oh, on the sure. Lillian Hellman play and uh, yeah. co-starring Audrey Hepburn. Mm-hmm. What do you say with hindsight that film was about? That film was about in every lie there's an ounce of truth. And that's what Lillian always said. So it's a picture about a lesbian relationship on, uh, on one character's mind. On the other character's mind, she didn't know it at all. Martha, my character, uh, was in love with Karen and um, didn't know it really until it came crashing uh, down around her because of a child's lie. But you see, in that lie, there was truth. And a relationship never expressed physically at all, and when your character finally said it out loud, she promptly hung herself. No, exactly, because she couldn't take what she thought that would mean. I have to tell you, though, Julia, when we were doing the picture and the way the original screenplay was written, there were scenes where my character would brush Karen's hair, would bake her cakes, would lovingly iron her clothing, would become much more intimately involved for the audience to be aware that that's what was going on. But the director, William Wyler, got a bit trepidatious about that, and he cut those scenes out. How interesting. But you know, when that uh, Lillian Hellman play, The Children's Hour, was first produced on Broadway, they raided the theater. The police came in and raided it. You've got to watch that hairbrushing, Shirley. <laughs> I guess so. Isn't that amazing, though, to think that... Uh, 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 for me, your performance there was extraordinary. Mm. Well, let's close. Uh, of all your films, is there one that you think, yes, I got it there, that's the one that I'm so, so happy about? I'm happy about Terms of Endearment, although it was really difficult to make. Um, I'm... Uh, I'm happy. I did a picture called Desperate Characters, which about two people saw, and I was very happy about that. I was happy about Madame Suzatska. I thought that was well done. John Schlesinger directed it, and I thought I was very good in that. But those, you know, I think every picture, after it's released, the reception is what influences what you think about it. Well, look, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Shirley McLean, and what a pleasure it's been speaking to us online from her home in New Mexico. And the book we've been discussing, Out on a Leash, Exploring the Nature and Reality of Love, is published by Simon & Schuster.
Celebrating 30 years of non-stop conversation. Life Matters on ABC Radio National. Do you see yourself as a collector? Maybe you have a collection that's grown to swallow up more than one room at home. Well, how about giving over an entire house to your collection? For Vanessa Glenn and Steve Towson, their collection of Australian folk music far exceeded any library they visited, so they decided to start their own. Ten years on, their collection has evolved into a DIY movement that's based in Rosewood, Queensland, which is an hour south of Brisbane. The focus of the Australian Cultural Library is to showcase the history of the arts in Australia. It has a dedicated team of volunteers and a sea of donations that just continues to swell. Nick Huntington went along to explore it. I'm amazed at the variety in them because I understand they were all sewn by the same person. One 90-year-old um, lady who, when I saw her looking at the dresses, it was like she was clearly in uh, bliss. In regional Queensland, the small town of Rosewood are reopening their town hall. A small room full of scones, tea and antique ball gowns. More than 70 of them, actually. An unusual exhibition. It's got locals talking. At present in the Rosewood community, there is a renewed interest in our history. So today we had an exhibition of vintage dresses, so ball gowns um, in town. This is Vanessa Glenn. It was, this is the first time that we have really reached out within the community here. For locals, she's a new face. Most have seen her scurrying around the weird old Queenslander down on John Street, taking in what looks like hundreds of boxes for weeks at a time. But Vanessa isn't just moving into this house. What might come as a surprise to many is Vanessa's part of something called the Australian Cultural Library. Which I had heard of, but really not seen any of of the exhibits that they have. But it's right here in Rosewood, and a lot of people don't even know that it's there. The Australian Cultural Library is going on 10 years, and it brings joy through rediscovery, connecting the new with the old. It's a bit different from your average library. Anyone walking past their converted Queenslander-style home wouldn't think twice. Beyond the never-ending garden of chocos and basil is a surprisingly polished shed, within which a world of discovery awaits. The Willy Wonka behind this treasure trove is a man committed to inclusivity. I'm Steve Towson, and I'm the president and director of the Australian Cultural Library. With a large tattoo of equality across Steve's forearm, he wears his values loud and proud. That kind of punk DIY element has, was one of the pretty much an ethos behind the library because when I started doing gigs and a lot of people I know, it was anyone at all would be welcome at a gig. Step inside the shed and all of a sudden you are transported. The interior looks like any other library, but with a few changes. It's floor to ceiling, amazing Australian poetry, uh, novels. On the top there's a Radio Birdman black t-shirt underneath it. The bookcases we've got here, they're made out of ceiling battens and melamine. Um, so very strong, but 
it's also a very practical way of um, being able to afford to make the amount of bookcases we need for the library. So, Roof-high bookshelves separated with just enough breathing space to browse in between, stuffed full of books and records from entry to exit. A seemingly never-ending pool of donations to sort through, filling the cracks of the foyer. A project at this scale requires a passion unlike any other. But passion has steered Steve's life since birth. I think my family were really into music and the arts. Dad was the ex, was in the Air Force, then became a visual arts lecturer at a uni. Um, so you see the practical side to and the severities of the arts, not just the glitz and glamour. It's quite common and acceptable for people to take the piss out of someone from a regional area, for example or from a poorer suburb in a capital city, but if you do tour, you get to see and experience amazing people. And then you realise that it doesn't really mean that much where someone's geographically located. So you get to understand that human beings are, you know, who they are, not just a simple catchphrase or something you can take the piss out of. Steve and his team of diehard volunteers are building on local curiosity to rethink how we see Australia's cultural history. Well, the collection itself is anything made by someone born here or migrated, or if it's um, someone who might have done something like a cover of a song. So if someone's done a Scar version of uh, Land Down Under by Men at Work, then it shows respect for Australian culture. And it's anything arts, humanities. So music, poetry, uh, film, books, uh, VHS. Yeah. The only things that, things that don't go on the shelf are things that are actually illegal which makes sense. And have you had stuff donated that is illegal? <laughs> no, fortunately. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't really want to have to deal with that. Hello, police officer. Give it time, give it time. Yeah. So, starting at the back of the hall, this is the western side of the uh, Thomas Rodriguez and Judith Shapcott Hall, which is named after um, Thomas Rodriguez and Judith Shapcott. No, the other way around. Thomas Shapcott and Judith Rodriguez. Whoops. Um, so, we have their personal library, though, Peering down one row of the library, there are giant posters of former political candidates and parties. Got everything from Pauline Hanson's maiden speech through to, you know, Bob Brown's autobiography through 1960s, I think even going back to like early 1900s political material. But, you know, that's so that people can look at the diversity of culture and political culture. On a desk in the library office sits a box of Passion Pop. I'm assured it's empty. It's kind of like the foyer area where we're still about to put in some stairs. Stepping back into the outside world from the collection housed in a converted backyard shed, through the garden and into the house, a retro Queenslander bursting with older formats. Local artworks adorn the walls, including a local Toowoomba celebrity portrait. Thousands and thousands of biros. The photo was taken by Sean Humphreys, who's a library volunteer. A collection of instruments and old formats spill into the hallway. The team at the Cultural Library didn't exactly set out with the grand visions they now have for the library. Here's Vanessa again. One day I had this great idea. Let's start a library. Deep in the touring cycle and seeking resources, the idea came from an adaptation of DIY culture. Which I, in my mind, renamed a DIO, so doing it ourselves. Thought it would be good to be able to share resources and ideas and network and knowledge and the things that otherwise fall through the cracks. At the core, it's a labour of love, 
grown from the shared interests of Steve and his partner Vanessa. The library started almost nine years ago. We had collected materials that was related to post-colonial Australian folk music and then went to local council libraries, state libraries and found that our collection was um, at least as significant and big as theirs. But right from the very first day, there was this, apparently this little old lady knocking on the door saying, I've got some things that you might be interested in. Do you, you know, would you like some donations? And, and that sort of kicked off this real passion that we've, we seem to have been able to link into in the community for some degree of community cultural preservation and an interest in, in the arts, of course. The library has stuck with its DIY ethos since the start operating exclusively with volunteers and without any formal funding. The team is made up of Steve. Myself as the director. With Vanessa assisting in the board of directors. Music is my hobby. Um, the library is my passion <laughs> the rest of the time. Di, she is our sheets, sheet music curator. But I'm Diane Glenn. But if there's no holds barred on culture, so many people can be interested and involved. Uh, Frankie, visual arts curator. Uh, my name's Frankie. I'm an artist. I think I started out of the womb. Ron, military history curator. Okay, I'm yeah. Ron, Ron Towson. I'm Steve's dad, amongst other things. With the values to collect, preserve, promote and house cultural works, the team at the Australian Cultural Library are focused on fighting hard against a culture determined to throw away the old and seemingly obsolete. Half the problem is if it's not easily accessible, people don't know it exists, so therefore, in their mind, nothing ever existed. But for me, the most important aspect is the, the preservation of, of things that might have otherwise been destroyed. It's almost anti-fascism in a way, you know. If you start judging what is or is not worthy of being on the shelf, then you could remove the book of poetry from Gainder that no one knows about except people from Gainder. And... All of a sudden, someone doesn't have a nice, pleasant memory of someone they cared about. Plus, the poet can get, you know, easily forgotten. Accepting almost anything can open up the library to ridicule. But it's an open invitation for those offended by the collection to donate items they see as more appropriate. Steve and the team open up the possibility to look at a truer reflection of Australia's collective mind for all its distorted beauty and muddled sensitivities. We do mention to people that with the library we don't censor, so there, there is stuff that people will find offensive, but it has been created, so therefore it is integral in understanding how we are where we are now. By providing a space where anyone can go and be swept away by a memory, Steve and the team are also hoping to stop the alienation of the elderly feeling discarded by society. I've seen that a lot where people come in and they meet younger people and young kids get blown away by talking to some elderly people about what these older folks have experienced and then you have elderly people going oh wow that those young kids are pretty amazing like the ephemeral nature of the exchange between people coming into the library and going oh that was my auntie that wrote that book or oh my my uncle's sister or you know that connection between the collection and just a random visitor in the library Sometimes I think that if we were to have a, a very simple mission statement, it would be around connecting people to, people to their culture. When you close your eyes and you think of home, you th 
perhaps you might think of your local landscape, the houses, the building, the built facility, but also the experiences that you have. That becomes, that's intrinsic then to you, your life, your experience of life. So I guess um, to be able to have a place where things are brought together that might remind you of who you are, but also exposes you to all of the other cultures that are, that uh, around you is somehow quite important to us as a society. Finally reaching out to the community after months of construction, an exhibition of dresses from Dulcie Mason has been an opportune way for Steve and the team to connect to the Rosewood community, stepping in to fundraise for better security and air conditioning at the local United Church. You do what you can do with what you've got, which has always kind of been a heavily, heavy motto of the library. Like we, I think in total, the cost to set up this exhibition, if you just look at what has been purchased, I think there was three rolls of wire, four packs of coat hangers, maybe some ribbons, so you're looking at 20 to $30. So if that 20 or $30 investment, if five people came along and really felt something, that's definitely a good investment. I was noticing many of the familiar faces. So people that I see pictured in the local newspaper as being, um, I guess, pillars of the community in their own ways. That was um, probably a, a good thing for us as a community group as we're starting now to put the network out to develop connections here where we don't have close connections. At the end of the day, simple acts rippling through the community is exactly what the library is built on. The dress collection is only one of the many ways Steve and the team are committed to inclusivity. So for me personally, it reminds me of like when my mother was 16 and made her debut. One of the ladies I spoke with this afternoon, same thing, you know, when she made her debut in, you know, 1960-something. And it's not the same old stories. It's never the same old story. Every one of those stories is unique in its own way and the remembrance of it is, you know, unique as well. The Australian Cultural Library are bringing the punk ethos of acceptance and individuality to the library space, and I think it's for the better. Just a huge whack in the face of like, yes, your country does have culture, and yes, there are a lot of people in this country creating amazing things to contribute to it. At first, even though it was a lot smaller than what it is now, it was just uh, awe-inspiring, really. It's turned me much more into Australian art and culture than I had been and I am so impressed. I'm finding wonderful things and just enjoying it so much. I can't believe the quality of some of the things and just awesome. There's this idea that Australia's culture is waltzing Matilda related, which is far from the truth. It's so much more complicated and diverse than um, call cats, meat pies and waltzing Matilda. Like, that is a small part of it. It's way more complicated than people give it, and diverse than people give it credit. Steve Towson from the Australian Cultural Library, ending that story by Nick Huntington. That's it from us for now, but we'll be back next time with more great stories from the year, like how to find peace and change your life with a certain philosophy you might have heard of called Stoicism. It's much more fun than it sounds. That wisdom and much more when RN Summer continues on Life Matters. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.